The red brick building on your right is Ward A, the male ward. Ward B, the female ward, is the one on your left. Ward C is that building on the bluffs, an old Civil War fort. The most dangerous patients are housed there. Admittance to Ward C is forbidden without the written consent and physical presence of both myself and Dr. Cawley. That understood. Hello and welcome, welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a podcast where we talk about movies that at least one of us has never seen before. Uh, this week, joining me is AJ. Hey, how's it going? And David. Uh, the longtime veteran. Yes. Uh, and this week we are talking about the 2010 Martin Scorsese-directed film Shutter Island starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, this came out 2010, actually opened number one at the box office uh, the week that it came out. Um, did decent, but has been largely, at least to my knowledge, kind of underappreciated and a little bit uh, forgotten in the last eight or nine years. Um, I don't hear it talked about a whole lot uh, for a movie that did as well as it did and has the, the pedigree and the people involved in it um, that it has. It is a... Uh, it's described as a neo-noir psychological thriller. Um, but uh, Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest living directors uh, around right now, um, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo. So you got your, uh, got your uh, what is it, um, Calvin, uh, what was his character in Django? Django <laughs> Unchained, Calvin something or other, and, uh, and the Hulk. Um, yeah, a great combination. <laughs> You know, this movie made almost $300 million, so it, yeah. it was popular. It did come out, uh, I want to say it was like a February release, so it was, you know, it was in the leaner time of the year, but um, it did well. It's a good movie. I don't know why it doesn't get talked about a lot, um, especially, like I say, Scorsese, DiCaprio, it's got um, Ben Kingsley, you know, it's it's got people in it. Um, Michelle uh, Williams. Yeah. Yeah, before, like, to my knowledge, before she really became Michelle Williams, um, I didn't know Before she from... started, like, looking at Oscars, and but after, you know, Dawson's Creek. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, let's talk about the cast a little bit, because it's got a hell of a cast. I mean, DiCaprio leading your movie. I am, I'm a big fan of DiCaprio. He is a phenomenal actor. Um, now, David, you had not seen this before, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, so... What did you think of DiCaprio uh, in the role? Um, I've I enjoy DiCaprio every once in a while. I don't know that I he's not an actor. Where I'm like I have to go see every movie he's ever been in ever. I think in the role, I think he did well enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, AJ, what did you think of DiCaprio? Oh, I think it was a great job. Um, you know, anytime he doesn't have to turn blue and fall off of a piece of wood and drown is, is a, you know, an upswing for him. Also a fair bit better than his days on you know, growing pains. That really was incredible acting where he actually drowned. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Um, now I have a couple of uh, things that I do want to talk about. But first I want to ask, because AJ, you said you hadn't seen it in a while. And yeah. David, you hadn't seen it before. What did you think of the characterization he had, kind of the the accent that he was trying to put on as, you know, the Boston um, 
you know, Boston U.S. Marshal, because I had some notes when I was watching it um, about that. But uh, I want to get your idea first, AJ. What did you think of his accent? Especially? Um, I, I've never been to Boston. Uh, it sounds a lot like uh, the stereotypical Boston cop accent you see in films, I guess is how I would describe it. Um, you know, same sort of thing you would see in, you know, any other here in any other film, you know, where you've got Boston cops, uh, you know, playing a certain age group. So I think it, it kind of fit in there, whether it's accurate or not. Again, I've never actually visited. So kind well, of hard to say. it's interesting that you say that because remember that four years before this movie was The Departed, which was also yep. Martin Scorsese and also led by DiCaprio, where he's playing a cop in Boston. Um, but David, what did you think of his accent? I thought it sounded like everybody's cheesy, stereotypical Boston accent. I didn't think it was anything special. Okay. I, I kind of actually like the way that you guys are describing that because when I'm watching the movie and the first time I saw the movie, my thought was, wait a minute, I know he can do a really, you know, a pretty good Boston accent, but for whatever reason, the first time I saw this movie, I thought he keeps dropping his accent. He's not holding it. And I know DiCaprio can hold an accent because if, you if you've seen him in uh, Django Unchained, if you've seen him in Blood yeah. Diamond, he holds accents really well. Blood Diamond was phenomenal. He kept dropping it in this. And when I watch it again subsequently, I realize that, at least in my opinion, I think it was on purpose. Because think about his character in this now. His character is not a U.S. Marshal from Boston. He thinks he is, right? Because, you know, okay, obviously, spoilers, we give away the twists in all these movies, but he's not Teddy Daniels. Yeah, true. That's so, actually an interesting perspective. I'd be interested, and I guess I wasn't paying enough attention to it that way, I'd be interested to go back to the scene right when he wakes up in bed, realizing who he is. I'd be interested if he had the accent there. I like don't... If he, yeah, I don't think he does. Now, I did capture a little bit of audio, and there is a couple times where uh, – let me see if I can find the one that I had where um, you can hear his accent drop. Uh, where did I put it? Uh, well, here's him really holding his accent, and this is early on. This is when they're on the boat. It was the smoke that got not the fire. So that's... You know, it's the smoke that got right? Four years. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and that's, that's very Boston. Um Oh, where was the other one? Uh, I know I have it here somewhere, but... Uh, oh, um, well, here you go. So this this clip is when he's talking to Max von Sydow's character, and uh, he's talking about the guy's English. And listen to... There's two parts of this. I kind of cut it together, but you can really hear the accent heavy in one part and not in the other. His English really is very good. You hit the consonants a tad hard, though. Yeah, you really hear that kind of... Yeah. A tad hard. But the first part of that... He's not he's not holding it as much. Yeah. So it was really interesting to listen to this and pay attention to that, you know, after the first viewing when you when you're looking because once you know the twist in a movie like this, you watch it again, you're watching it, it's a very different thing. Um the best description of that kind of uh feeling I've ever had was somebody was explaining um I think they were talking about the usual suspects at the time. But they were saying that watching a movie like this multiple times is kind of like seeing a play, but sitting in different parts of the theater every time you yeah. see the play. You're seeing it from a different angle. You catch stuff that, that you didn't notice before. And you know any kind of thriller like this where it's got twists and it's got stuff that's really keeping you guessing or trying to keep you guessing, um, 
I think you get that. And that was something that I kind of paid a lot more attention to this time around was was the little the little hints that gave away that Teddy wasn't really Teddy. And um, because if you think about it, I mean, the movie starts off, they're coming in on the ferry. Right. And all of the guards are super tense and they're, you know, you can play that off and they, they play that off in the movie is like, well, we've got an escaped patient and everybody's on edge and all that. No, they're tense because they've got this freaking crazy dude who beats the hell out of people and <laughs> he doesn't know who he is. Like, <laughs> that's why they're so tense. That's why everybody's on, you know, pins and needles. Like when you when you watch it and David, I think you should watch it a second time now that you've seen it once and kind of pay attention to some of that stuff, because um, I think you, you'll, you'll get a very different experience watching it when you know that you know Teddy's actually kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, interesting. I think you just decided we need a second podcast in a, you know, another six months where we actually go back and rewatch all of them and do further analysis. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> well, let's, yeah, let's, let's pause the podcast now, watch it again, and we'll start back up later. There you go. Uh, um, no, I mean, I just think it, it, it makes what I felt the first time I saw this movie as, a, as an okay performance a lot better in retrospect. Because now you realize that, no, DiCaprio's playing a character who's playing a character himself and doesn't really know the you know what's real and what isn't and really believes that he's this person because of the trauma that he went through. No, that makes sense. Mm, interesting. Um, uh, and, and I don't know, a lot of films in that like better category, uh, you, not only do they have rewatchability, but they're enjoyable and you can get something new out of them that you know you're hitting the, you're hitting it hard yes that is exactly what we're seeing here um you know you go in already knowing what the twists and turns are and you pick up on things as you pointed out with like the dropping of the accent you wouldn't notice that the first time around or appreciate it second third etc yeah you you do pick up on those nuances and probably why it's you know you you what you get out of the better actors actresses you know directors is is seeing that detail that you didn't see on that first pass that other films perhaps miss mm -hmm. yeah absolutely. you would do what i did and write it off as not the best accent ever <laughs> exactly i mean that's exactly right you know and and there's other little things like Ben Kingsley's character, you know, he's the he's the doctor, and I think there were there were moments where he was kind of trying to tip his hand a little bit, um, as far as like, no, this is all you know a fiction. I mean, he talks about um, there's a there's a line actually where he says he says this. To sustain the delusion that her children never died, she's created an elaborate fictional structure. She gives us all parts to play in that fiction. I mean, right there, he gave the movie away there. But because the first time you see it, you don't know anything, it it doesn't hit you. But when you watch it again, what you notice is the way he structures that sentence, the way he says it. And then when he, you know, that last pause before saying we all parts to play in that. And then he looks right at DiCaprio fiction like he's trying to tell the guy what's going on. So, you know, this, those are little subtle touches that I really like in a movie like this. And you also saw that when he and perhaps the other doctor were mentioning how he had um, certain defense mechanisms, which, you know, looking back and, you know, going backwards, you go, yes, the, he's actually alluding to the fact that 
he is crazy and a patient and mm -hmm. that it's not just some doctor analyzing a marshal. Right, exactly. But, you know, the first blush, at first blush, you'd think, oh, no, he's just, you know, he's psychoanalyzing the, the marshal. And, and you Adding realize some creepiness to the, you know, to the whole you know, film just be, being a little weird. Yeah, exactly. You know, and to like the way that you perceive Mark Ruffalo's character um, from from one viewing to the next changes a lot when you realize that he's his doctor and there's a reason why he never leaves him alone. But but also just the way that they interact and, you know, he's constantly asking him how he's feeling and how he's doing and if he's OK. And he's you know, he's not really he doesn't really act like a marshal, uh, especially when you when you watch it through that lens. Uh, and you realize that no, he's not a marshal. I mean, even simple things like, you know, him fumbling with the the uh, weapon and the holster to get it out of his uh, his pants, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, um, I just I thought that I thought that DiCaprio, I thought that Kingsley, and I thought that Ruffalo uh, were all really really good. I love Mark Ruffalo. I will watch him in anything, <laughs> and uh, I just like his. I, there's something about his screen presence. So when I saw that he was in this. I enjoyed that already, and I just thought he did a really great job. And you know, it's it's not perfect by any stretch, but I, I did think that it was a it was a really well done, uh, really well put together cast. The head, um, the uh, the head guard, is played by um, where is his name, John Carroll Lynch, and he's he's kind of a character actor. He plays a he's the deputy warden. Um, he. He pops up in a lot of uh, a lot of movies as like a small part. He was in Zodiac. He was in um, Volcano. Fargo. I remember him in Fargo. Yep. And uh, I always I always like him. Um, you had I, uh, I I liked seeing Emily Mortimer. Oh yeah, um, that was great. Smaller part, but and I've always loved seeing her on film. Mm -hmm. so. Patricia Clarkson was good um, as you know the other Rachel. Um, Jackie Earl Haley in a small role. This was. Um, uh, 2010 that was after Watchmen right yes Watchmen was 09 okay so <clears throat> kind of riding Jackie Earl Haley riding that wave obviously we talked I mentioned Max von Sydow uh, we talked about Michelle Williams and the warden and the warden only had a small part and he only showed up kind of towards the end and was super creepy but it was Ted Levine um, who was Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs and also um, yeah. in Monk and he's another one of those guys that you see him in a lot of little parts, but he's great. He's always good. And it was there was something about him as that warden character and as that like, it, like you almost wonder if he was trying to play into the conspiracy idea for him or if he didn't buy it at all and he was just that was who he was. Probably would take another watch shortly after having watched it recently to really try to pick that apart a little further. I mean, and sometimes you, you have to be careful at what rabbit hole you go down. It's you know, true. There are times where you're doing, you know, uh, you're looking at something and coming up with some, some insights. And there's other times where you try and you just kind of create your own fiction, I guess. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of uh, films as an art form is that they can be interpreted like that. Um, Ted Levine, the warden, had one of my uh, favorite moments, too, and I did capture that. And that was that was this one. If I was to sink my teeth into your eye right now, would you be able to stop me before I blinded you? Give it a try. That's the spirit. Like that. That's just so creepy. And that's where I'm like wondering, okay, was he part of everything or did he just not buy it and he's just a weird warden? 
Yeah, because yeah, at, at that point, you had gotten a lot of clues that it was all in his head, but then they were still giving you things, throwing you back to it not being real. Right. Yep. Exactly. They they were or it they, actually it actually being uh, a, uh, another prison camp. Yeah. Yep. They they hadn't completely revealed that everything was was a fiction yet, so they were just kind of getting their their. It was interesting. Um, I do think. Okay. So David, at what point did do you think you figured it out? Um. Well, I, the first thing I'd say is I don't think it hit me very hard figuring it out i was like oh that's interesting it wasn't like what okay but um when they were explaining it to him and when he you know shot the fake gun and you know ben kingsley was like super chill about it (laughs) i still thought like part of me in my head was thinking so he's gonna sort of you know admit he was admit they were right he'd wake up in bed or whatever and then you'd see like ben kingsley smirk or something or like we get like some sort of shot showing that he was right all along and they were convincing him that his story was made up like they do like a pan shot of like you know an operating room or something like that and i i was sort of hoping for that and the fact that they did eventually end up having to lobotomize him through implication alone sort of felt like what was the point of going through all that? Okay, I can just gonna do it anyway. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. I, I think the idea was that you know Ben Kingsley uh, as Doctor Cauley, he he believes in rehabilitation. He doesn't want to do the lobotomies, so he was really hoping that this could be the the final time where they could really snap him out of it. And if they if they all played along and they let him go through this whole thing that he would come out of it and realize what had happened and accept it and move on and uh, be able to just be a patient again so they could continue treating. So they go through everything. When they finally reveal it all, because if you notice, like, after the reveal and he wakes up in the bed and he's he, he admits to who he is, that he's latest, and all of that, <clears throat> they still aren't 100% sure until Mark Ruffalo is like, nope. Because he, he slips back into it. He starts talking again about the conspiracy and about how they're too smart for it. And he, he just can't – he can't break out of it. And that's when they're like, okay, well, we tried. We That was our last attempt because of the backstory of how angry and violent he gets. Um, they had to do something to subdue him. Uh, and that was why they went that route. So, But I, I, I do like the idea that you had, and I think that that's kind of A interesting. double twist. Yeah, that would have been a very much a double twist. I think too, by this stage, by 2010, we'd had a few movies that did that double twist. So I don't well, know. I, I, yeah, I don't know if it would have been as satisfying for me to have it like that. I I think in in many ways, and I, again, I'd have to go back and look at what else was made. You know, ten years before to really you know, be 100 percent certain on this, but it it feels like they were you know, aiming for an originality in that it felt like a a movie about gaslighting, but it wasn't. So oftentimes, you know, we have the whole, there have been other films that have that style of twist where you go in and and it's the psychological thriller, but then yes, they pan and you're correct. And, you know, they win or they lose, but you, you know, you do have that. Yes, they weren't crazy. And I'm trying, I'm struggling right now to think of other films where, you have all of that going in, but it turns out, yes, they're effing nuts. 
you know, mm-hmm. like he was crazy and, and for good reasons, given everything that they demonstrated having happened to him. But like, I felt that it was a better film because he was crazy. It wasn't, they, you know, he was, you know, they were going to go ahead and, and have the whole conspiracy. And it was that, yes, he was crazy. That was the, like the, the story. And we didn't try to like do a double fake or anything. Um, well, and, and I think if they go the double fake route, that, that movie's been made and it's been made better as the usual suspects, because that's really what that was. That was the double fake in that they set up the entirety of the movie telling you one thing and then they say, oh, but it's this. And then you get the reveal that it's actually neither of those things um, at all. So I think that's a better, better way to do that. I think I agree with you, AJ, and that I kind of like how this, this movie was setting up for this big grand conspiracy but you're not quite sure. There's there's all sorts of little clues as to what are we seeing and is it really what we think we're seeing? And then it turns out in the end, nope, he's actually just a complete nut. And that's that. Um, and kind of dovetailing on what we were talking about earlier with sort of the little touches and the little things, um, how many of those do you think you picked up on? Uh, any kind of clues that things weren't quite what they seem? or Because obviously this movie's trying to play with your head a little bit as the as the audience um, in setting that up. Like when she gets the, when he's uh, interviewing the one lady and she asked for the glass of water, did you guys catch? I saw that. I noticed yeah. that. Yeah. Where she, the water gets set down and she picks up the glass of water to drink it, but there's no glass there. Like untrained eye or somebody that's not really paying attention is going to think it's weird continuity errors for stuff. Like she picks up no glass. She sets it down. It has, has water in it. But then there's a shot later where you see the glass from a different angle and there's no water in it. And that could be chalked up to continuity problems. But I think it more with Scorsese, especially as good of a director <laughs> as he is, I think those are on purpose. Little little things like that. Um, yes, I, this was not a Starbucks cup in season eight. <laughs> I also really liked the way they did the dream sequences. Um, I think that those were were interesting The the music that they chose and it was it they felt like dreams now they did use the trope of uh dream within a dream which i think can be overdone i like it it's effective for me but it's effective for me because i've actually experienced that i've woken up from a dream to find out that i'm still in a dream to wake up from that dream and it's a weird weird feeling so when i see that in a movie it doesn't bother me but uh, it is a little tropey to to have that in a dream sequence, especially in a psychological thriller like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, at least they didn't go quite as far as they did with you know Inception. Same year, same you know main star. Yeah, dream within a dream within a dream. Within Although that that was a very different director and movie. It was. So. It was. I'm just saying, it was you know only a couple levels there. Yeah, it wasn't too tropey. I guess. Um, no, I just I th- now okay. Here's an interesting bit of trivia. I don't know if uh, you guys know this or not, but there is no um, original score for this movie. Hmm. All of the I music. I did not know that. Yeah, all of the music in this movie come came from other sources. Um, so I thought that was interesting because I liked the music. You know, uh, like, it was a phenomenal music. Yeah, they, they that chose was one thing I immediately noted. Yeah, they they chose really good. Uh, really good music to use, um, but uh, yeah, I was I was surprised. I did not know that until I was looking up some info on this. Um, that uh, let me see if I music. So Shutter Island 
they actually put out a, a soundtrack, Shutter Island music from the motion picture. Um, but uh, yeah, the collection of modern classical music uh, was hand selected by Robbie Robertson. Uh, he's who kind of oversaw the music stuff for it, and uh, it's really, really, really good, really effective, especially that really discordant um, piano thing that they had going on in the dream sequences was kind of unnerving and there were little things too that they would do with the music and the way they would cue it and then uh i loved the shot where dicaprio looks up and he sees emily mortimer and then the, the smoke from his cigarette is going in reverse i don't know if you caught that or not but it's just this nice little subtle thing where he's looking and it's just the smoke they just play the shot backwards uh but it just very subtly and it just looks so weird and and off-putting so i i was a big fan of that most things in this movie were filmed to be pretty weird and off-putting they were and i mean i obviously that the idea behind that is that they're trying to make you guess and and question what's going on but uh there were there were other times where um they would do stuff like not have audio when he's in the ward c there uh, he's walking through an area, and you can see like how it's wet, and there's water dripping everywhere, but you don't hear that. And that, to me, is almost as effective, if not more effective, than having that ambient water dripping in the background. Because asylums, I, I always picture with that. Like, I don't know what it is, but for whatever reason, when I think of a, an asylum, I think of an old building, and the walls are like always wet, and it's always dripping water, and you you got that visual without the audio to go with it so that can kind of mess with your head too well it's certainly a creep factor getting so, rid of that yeah audio reference uh so david you did like the music that's cool um i'm i'm glad to hear that oh, oh okay overall what did you think of um the the visual style of the movie because for the most part it didn't do it didn't rely on a lot of like vi- vi- digital effects but they did do some obviously yeah, it seems very well put together from a cinematographical standpoint. I feel like a lot of these thriller movies take place in areas near the ocean, or it's super rainy, or it's the woods, just because they're eerie zones, and it's and it's tricky to film them the same things for the millionth time and have it be interesting. Um, I thought they did that a couple interesting shots in the movie where they definitely made those sort of cliched zones feel more interesting, like in the asylum, which the civil war, like, you know, you sort of think that old asylum, like you said, it's either, you know, wet or it's white walled. And yeah. this asylum was much more prisony because it obviously was a prison and sort of it added good, uh, a, a breath of fresh air to those pretty cliched, um, settings for movies like this. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think I think visually, I think the movie was pretty effective. Um, yeah. You know, so you, you've got good director, you've got a good cast, you've got a good uh, feel for the vision of the movie, an interesting way to do the music. I can't think of a movie like this where there was no original score. Um, I mean, I've there obviously have been movies, plenty of movies that have, you know, just licensed music. But I can't think of one in this style that's that's gone that route before. So that was kind of neat. Um, did either of you know that this was based on a book? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I I'd didn't be, know that. I'd be interested. I've not read the book. read the book though. <laughs> no, I have not either. Um, 
but I'd be interested to read the book, even even knowing kind of everything that's going on. Now I have to read Dune and this? Well, the fun thing with Dune is that it just keeps going and going <laughs> and going. Because there's like 20-something sequels and a few dozen prequels, too. <laughs> yes, but you really only, you'd really only have to read the first one, so you'd be fine there. Um, so it's based on a book, and what I thought was kind of neat was there's probably the most effective line of dialogue in the movies right at the end um, where Teddy has, he, you know, latest has slipped back into Teddy and he's talking to Chuck and he says, you know, this place makes me wonder which would be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man. Uh, And that, that's not in the book. Um, But what I thought was kind of interesting was uh, let's see. Oh, do, 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 do. it's not in the book uh, and inspired an article in The Guardian over what the movie's ending really meant. Uh, DiCaprio and Scorsese never gave concrete answers, but uh, a doctor, James Gilligan, um, his theory on it was that uh, Daniels uh, did choose his fate. Um, he So the, the idea is that, yes, he knew... He, he had kind of come to grips with everything, but at the same time, he knew that he couldn't run the risk of possibly hurting anybody else. So he was going to sort of give himself up, I guess, if that makes any sense. Um, so it's sort of committing a form of committing suicide uh, by giving the Shutter Island staff the green light to fully lobotomize him, um, which is an interesting way to, to take that at the end because you think about all this this character has gone through you know, he, he's in World War II and all the just shit that he saw during that, uh, that I can't, first of all, to, to try and get into the headspace of that character, I can't even imagine that part of it. And then you take on the fact that now, you know, he also has to deal with the fact that his wife killed their children and then he killed her. And so he creates this elaborate fantasy world that he lives in. And when it's revealed that it's a fantasy world to him, the, the thought in this theory anyway is that he realized, okay, yep, this is all fake, but you know what? I'm too dangerous to, to be let up, you know, let loose kind of thing. So I'm just going to go ahead and give myself up. Um, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. If, if that's how it's chosen to be interpreted, which I don't think is a bad interpretation because with, and obviously he may have regressed the character so far back, but in the lighthouse, he was so against that being a possibility. You'd think if he went back to that possibility, unless he regressed so far, um, he would probably have still been pretty hostile rather than sort of letting it seem like it's all okay. And they, he still sort of got the reins on it to, uh, to his partner, Chuck partner. Well, partner. well, I think the idea is that the, the treatment worked in that they were trying to feed into his fantasy to an extent, and then reveal to him, no, none of this is real. You've created all this to try and deal with what's happened to you. That the 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 idea was that that was going to snap him back into reality and make him come to grips with what had happened, so he could start to heal from that. And I think what this theory states is that all worked, and he was able to come to grips with this stuff happened to him, but he knows himself enough to know that he can't fully heal from it so he needs to go away yeah um, he, he knows he's not okay with what he had done yes yep so um yeah you know and look the movie the movie isn't perfect i do think that 
it was a tad long. It was about two hours and 15 minutes. He probably could have cut down to about two hours on this and not really lost anything. I don't think it was necessarily poorly paced, but I did think while it was important to have him attack that guy and, you know, really beat him pretty badly. Uh, oh, the hydrogen bomb thing? Yeah. I While it's important to have that as a plot point, and, you know, you've got to show him with the anger and all of that, I do think that they could have maybe... It didn't have to be a completely independent character. Like, he's on his way to find the Jackie Earl Haley character, whatever his name was, um, uh, George. George could have been that guy that he ran into again. You know, it, it could have been that. Like, I don't know. I, I, I did feel like that. I'm going to I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that because you, uh, by having it be two separate people, they demonstrate visually to us in the real time that he is violent. He is... Even as his alter ego, he is violent. That that violence is still slipping through. And when we go ahead and actually find the other character, and you have that entire dialogue sequence, it goes to go ahead and build the case against his character, saying, it wasn't this one time, it wasn't that one time. Yeah. He is continuously violent. Otherwise, you you know, what what is his crime if you kind of go back and put put everything together that he killed his wife given all of the, the things that happened i'm not sure that you know like i'm not suggesting that's okay but i have a feeling that like a lot of other people wouldn't respond well to coming home to their three children being murdered and floating in a pond you know that going to have a little bit of a you know something on the psyche yeah no you're, so you're... I think it really builds up more of of the concern of the character and why, you know, versus he killed his wife after he came home and found that she'd murdered her three children. Like, there there was so much more on top of that than just, you know, he'd murdered one person with a lot of this, you know, special circumstance. It it really drew out that, that anger, that violence that we saw it, you know, once and then we we go ahead and see back the result of it from a previous time and the, and the fright on the other character's face you know you did this to me you did this to me um you know yes. otherwise if you get rid of either one of those or both i think it changes the movie a lot just because you you have someone who doesn't have this violent background that we have to be afraid of you have someone who is delusional and and killed one person you know, in 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 a situation, uh, you know, it kind of removes like you know why the guards would be afraid of him, and you know a lot of the what's around why he needs to be at this location versus some other institution. That's a fair point. Also, right? also he had shared that he wanted to get George out. Yeah, no, you're you're not wrong there. That does make a lot more sense. Well, it it makes sense. I. I retract my previous statement. Oh, and I'm not trying to, to <laughs> I just I just think that that was a particularly important event in my my opinion. That's all. I just No, you're uh, you're not wrong. Um I do also I think the H bomb thing was just a like a fake lead that they were trying to like make you feel like it was more important than it was, but it it was even less important than they were trying to make you think it was. True. Um Oh, uh, so talking about kind of circling back to some of the visual stuff to it. Um, 
I had a note written down. Uh, there's that that shot in Ward C um, where it's overhead and he's walking through it, and then the way the camera spins and that just weird weird angle. I'm such a, <laughs> I'm such a sucker for shots like that. And like, oh yeah, creative. It, well, creative, and they just I I love them. I unabashedly I love just goofy or odd or discordant camera angles and camera shots like that. They they will win me over every single time. So I really like that. Um, I uh, I am going to – I will – I do think you're you're 100% right on it. It was a little long. I think that you probably could have cut out. I think the boat scene was a little extra long. Coming um, uh, at the beginning, me, coming was, in on it? An, yeah. Uh, I, I would have said that some of the, the trekking around was a little long. Like we know there's a storm. They did a really good job filming that. I mean like that was phenomenal filming. But I'm not sure all of the different times where he's going up this and down that and then all the rats. and like, I'm not sure all of that was needed. You needed to see the second Rachel. Um, you needed to see the cigarette on the, the cliff. I, I feel like you probably could have removed minutes out of the film by edi- editing a bit more tightly in some of those scenes when they're outside of the main property. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense than what I was saying before of, of ways to kind of tighten it up. Um, little, little things I think can, could have brought the runtime down just enough where it just oh, felt yeah. like it felt like there were a few times where the pacing fell off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted, I'm sure we could go back through, you know, scene by scene and actually like remove one or two without affecting the story. Cause there were, there were some bantery things um, mostly with, you know, Mark Ruffalo's character that established the rapport and then you understand better how he's the doctor, mm-hmm. but perhaps wasn't worth the extra, you know, several minutes. Yeah. Um, you still would have gotten everything without it. Um, it. It did feel like it dragged a few times. Wouldn't be the first film. Certainly no. not going to be the last. No. And I'm sure that there was probably a lot that they did cut already to get it down to two fifteen, Which mean... would be actually interesting just, you know, not that I love a, a long drawn out film that feels like it drags, but it would it would be interesting to see what like, you know, the first edit was, just to see what else, you know, Scorsese had kept in um, you know, on, on that first run through when they were putting things together, whatever director's cut or et cetera. Yeah. It would have been. Um whatever film we, we did not get to see. Yeah, I do think though, uh especially David because you hadn't seen it yet uh, it'd be worth watching again in like you know a month or two and pay more attention to some of the like subtle clues and little things that they they you know and see where maybe you can you know kind of figure out where they tip their hand because I'm looking over my notes from watching it and like at one point I'm like oh we're halfway through and they're they're starting to tip their hand a little bit more and then like right after that I had the realization but if you've never seen this movie before and you don't know the twist to it it just looks like, uh, you know, a, a cop that's seen too much, uh, and he's tortured by it while he's trying to figure out this other weird case. Um, so, you know, I, I think that you might you might get something out of it uh, watching it again. Um, sure. I uh, I, I kind of want to come back to the casting a little bit because it's just such good character actors in all these little roles. Like even the small role of the dream sequence version of, uh, of Andrew latest, you know, the guy with the, the big scar and the two different colored yeah. eyes and all that. And it's Elias Coteus. And 
I adore him as an actor. Like, he's always fun to watch. It doesn't matter what it's in. It doesn't matter how bad the movie is. He, for me, is, is something that elevates it. Now, you can't say that, you know, he's in this movie enough for to make it worth watching for him, but to see him pop up in there. And, like, you know, like I said, Teddy, uh, Ted Levine or Levine um, as the warden. Like, little things like that, I think, make a movie like this better than it really has right to be. Um, so I'm Ben Kingsley was the shining star for me. Oh man. So I always liked Ben. I... He, he is great. And he had two, he had two moments and I caught both of them that made me just chuckle while I was watching it. The first one was when they find the, um, the little slip of paper that's got the rule of four and who is 67. Um, and, uh, and there's this little exchange and I did, I did bleep it a little bit because of the F bomb that gets dropped, but, but I just love this. Who is 67? If I know, I have to say that's quite close to my clinical. <laughs> like he's just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to kind of not really like, there's no way a doctor would really go that route, but it, it fit. <laughs> and I just thought that was funny. <laughs> I have yeah, that's pretty close to my conclusion. Um, the other one was uh, when Teddy gets into the lighthouse and he kicks in the door, and then Ben Kingsley says this. Why are you all wet, baby? Yeah, that really jumps out of nowhere. It and really he, does. The way he delivers it is <laughs> just, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's... they had that relevancy like two minutes later, but just... Yeah, no, it's, wow. it's at that point, you're not prepared for that. And I loved it, and I'm keeping that sound forever. So I can just pull it out whenever <laughs> I want and just... Ringtone. Uh, it's great. Uh, but he also... TSA might pull you aside, though, if, if they hear that go <laughs> off while you're in line. Oh, no, I'm not talking about a ringtone. I'm talking about just for the show. I'll just, every once in a while, play that for fun. Um <laughs> And uh, he also had, um, I, I loved the delivery of this line. We treat them, try to heal, try to cure. And if that fails, at least we provide them with a measure of comfort in their lives. Calm. Like, I totally buy that as the Doctor character, that's what he feels he's doing. Like, he, I really, he believes that he's trying to help people. And I just liked, I liked that and I liked him. Yeah. Uh, there were some other good... Um, uh, lines of dialogue that I did capture. Um, I think this is the one from the end of the movie. You know, this place makes me wonder. Yeah, what's that book? Which would be worse? To live as a monster or to die as a good man? I just, I like that. Um, and especially... Guess, oh, go ahead. I guess you can interpret that line like he knows that he has to get lobotomized. Like, either I live knowing what actually happened... Mm-hmm. knowing that I'm tortured, knowing that I'm a monster. Or I die, you know, mentally. Thinking that I'm, you know, this war hero. Making his own decision, his own free choice. Yeah. So I guess that sort of plays into that theory, which I kind of like. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the deputy warden did a really good job of keeping his accent, and he had, of course, uh, you know, he's very insistent that nobody have firearms. Gentlemen, you will not get through this gate with your firearms. Your firearms. <laughs> um, there was also, uh, early on, um, DiCaprio had uh, this line, and I think it kind of bookends really well with uh, the whole, you know, live as a monster, die as a good man, was, 
apparently not not what I thought. <laughs> so that clip didn't come out very well. Gentlemen, nope. you will not get through this gate with your firearms. So you're not going to get through the gate with your firearms. That's all I'm saying. This is <laughs> good enough. Um, <laughs> I did think it was kind of funny how he never remembered that he was from Seattle. He kept saying, yeah. "The hell you boys smoking over there in Portland anyway?" Yeah, he kept saying he was from Portland. Portland is not Seattle. Oh, it is not. This this was a great one. So this was early in the movie, and again, the first time around, this line has a very different meaning from the second time, and that is, "You act like insanity is catching." Because he <laughs> says that, and if you now you know when you watch it a second time and you know that he's the one that's insane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Makes it a lot different. Interesting. I like it. <laughs> Overall, I, I think this is one that I, you know, I'd easily recommend to anyone to watch. It wasn't too, I mean, certainly there's the psychological violence, you know, of, but, you know, it's not a bloody film. Um, it's not scary. It's got some creep factor. Got some thrill, and you know I think they tell a really good story. Really I was gonna solid. say I think there was one jump scare right when the patient jumps out that was in the trailer. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> that I watched right before I watched the movie. Yeah, it's not a jump scare movie, um, which I appreciate. Yeah, but um, it would have meant a lot more had it scared me. Yeah, maybe. Well, okay, so we've kind of got AJ's take. He liked the movie. So David, as a first-time viewer of this movie. What's your take on it? It's good. Uh, it's definitely, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to rush out to watch it again, but I do definitely think I would benefit from a second watching. Yeah, and it definitely is something that I think is worth watching a second time. Um, but it's nice to hear that, you know, you did enjoy the movie. So that's always, I, I prefer when we can get you to watch a movie for the first time that you do enjoy and not, uh, not be like Tank Girl. So. A day that will live in infinity. It will. I'm never going to live that one down. But uh, You won't. And I will never forgive you. It won't be the last one that I have you guys watch that you don't like. Or there might be something that I end up watching that I don't like. Who knows? Although, it's hard for me to not like movies. Um, I'm sure if we put some effort towards it, we could find one or two. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite certain of that as well. But, uh, no, I think overall it's a good movie. And I think it's worth seeing. Um, especially if you're a fan of... Either Scorsese, because it's got a lot of his hallmarks in it. It's got a lot of, it feels, it, it, it isn't the most Scorsese feeling movie, but it definitely has his uh, fingerprints on it. If you like DiCaprio, I think it's worth watching. Um, and uh, if you like psychological thrillers, I think it's worth watching. I don't think it's the best one. I don't think it's even the, necessarily the best psychological thriller I've seen in the last 10 years. But I think it's, uh, it's an underappreciated movie um, for the most part, so. I, I guess I really like the fact that it is a psychological thriller, and yet we don't have anyone dying. I, I, I'm sure there are plenty of examples where it doesn't happen, but my immediate thought when someone says psychological thriller is that, like, you know, I think, you know, like Zodiac style, we're hunting someone that's a murderer, or, you know, there's something crazy like that going on in the background, and, like, bodies will show up. And you didn't have that here. Uh, and I, I guess I, I like that aspect that. It was a psychological thriller. It told a solid story, and we didn't have to worry about, you know, like, oh, people are dying. Just you know, it feels like the like people dying off oftentimes goes with psychological thriller. 
That's a good point, and I didn't really think about that. And all the times that I've watched this, there isn't really a body count in this movie. I mean, not really. Not not in the present day. I not mean, in the present yes. day. Like backstory, yes. You, the, yeah, the yeah. World War Two. His wife and kids, yes. But you know, present day, nobody dies while they're on the island. So, um, just something I guess I noticed. That you don't see that with the psychological thrillers. Again, I'm sure you can find some. Um, well, yeah, maybe and... someone will come out and go, well, here's a list of, you know, a thousand, but it just, I don't think it can't really come to, you know, top of my mind, just like, oh, yes, here's a bunch of, you know, psychological thrillers where nobody dies. No, it always seems like you have like a boogeyman and or like death. Yeah, in, no, in you're, you don't you're really right. have that here. Because a lot of psychological thrillers are either dealing with a supernatural force or mm-hmm. it's something around based around like a, a serial killer. A serial um, killer. Yeah. You know, often. Most of the time, because that's just kind of where Hollywood likes to go. So, no, that makes perfect sense. I did not think of that. I I like that angle to it. Uh, It's very interesting. All right. Well, um, you know, I think I think that's pretty good. Uh, I think that that we have a consensus. We all like the movie. It was uh, was well put together. Phenomenal cast. Um, I got. I got nothing else really to say about it. I just enjoyed the movie. Um, I would recommend it. It features Grammy Award winner Ben Kingsley. <laughs> as as well as uh, Oscar winner. Because uh, I think this movie has two Oscar winners um, in it. Is that all? <laughs> well, a, a lot of them that were... Uh... Well, Scorsese, Kingsley. Well, I'm just, I was just talking uh, oh, okay. actors. Actors. I'm trying to find because I thought I saw a trivia thing on it, but it had. Uh, uh, well, anyway, it was a couple of Oscar winners plus you know several people that had been nominated for Oscars um, as well. Oh, uh, this was kind of neat too. So Scorsese and DiCaprio, before they decided they were going to make this, were actually working on getting Wolf of Wall Street made, but they couldn't secure the financing for it, so they made this movie. And then three years later, they made Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. So, in some ways, we can kind of thank this movie because it probably helped them to get financing to have a movie make three hundred million dollars. I'm just saying, especially when the budget was eighty. Like, you know, it's that's a, all of those are large amounts of money. Like, don't get me wrong, but some of the, especially with like the the superhero films we've had recently, between actor pay and just the amount in in uh, special effects, you know, the budgets on some of those are, you know a couple hundred million and so they have to hit even bigger numbers but yeah i mean and they do they're generally pretty safe bets yeah but like they made 300 and it was all on acting you know it was yeah it wasn't like green screen it was on acting in a good story and they almost quadrupled their money like people saw it based on the people's names and anything that anytime I could turn around, you know, get what quadruple my money on something, I'd be happy. I don't yeah. know about you guys. If I, I gave someone $8 and they gave me 30 I would be pretty happy with that trade. Yeah. I so, take that trade every day. So this was interesting, and I did not know this. So Scorsese and DiCaprio have worked together a few times. This Couple. is the only movie that they worked together on um, that didn't get an Oscar nomination. Wow. Because they did Gangs of New York, Aviator, The Departed, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, All got Oscar noms. This didn't. Um, That's interesting. I I would say it is the weakest of those movies, certainly. So I can kind of understand it. But 
I'd be interested to go back and look sometime and see the um, Oscar because this this was originally supposed to come out uh, I think in the fall of 2009 um, yeah it was scheduled to come out in October and be in contention for the Oscars and then they pushed it back so it didn't come out until February of 2010 which is kind of typically a time of the year when uh, studios are dumping the stuff that they don't think is any good yeah so I don't know. I, I do think that it's a much better movie than maybe its reputation or, or at least its legacy is. Because uh, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it. And that's unfortunate because it's pretty good. And, and I'd just like to throw out there, you know, to the movie studios, let, let's go ahead and, and get in this habit of just doing quality films year round and sprinkle the mediocre ones in year round. I hate it when I've got like a glut, like the, you know, there's one or two months of like very little to go to see, see at the theater, which I enjoy doing. And then all of a sudden we'll have a ton of stuff during the summer and then we'll go ahead and have like another dip and then a huge, it's like, no, let, let's just go ahead and, yeah, let, I, th- this is, this is 2019. Let's go ahead and just try to work on having decent all year round. Like really, I, I get the reasons, the Oscars and that, but come on now. Yeah, no, I'm I agree with you on that 100%. Yeah. But and I'm not a movie guy as you guys may have noticed. Um no. or at least not to the degree you guys are, but what I am is a video game person. And I think that year-end waiting is even much more apparent in gaming. Oh yeah. And I think that does kind of make a bit more sense in gaming because it's the holiday season games. A game is generally going to be more expensive than a movie ticket. Um, but there's always a drought from like January to June ish. So you have to scour your steam library. Exactly. (laughs) Except for 2020. If you paid attention at all to E3 this week, everything is coming um, out. Witcher 3 was originally slated to come out in uh, November, and then they pushed it back to, I think it came out in March of 2013 or 2014, something like that. Interesting. And so that was it may just be a CD Projekt Red thing. Could be. I guess we have so many other things that try to work out that business cycle, flatten the business cycle. I'd like to see that in some of the entertainment industry. You know, Netflix has gotten better at it where they're, you know, they're staggering releases of stuff regularly so that people won't drop it and then come back for like three months. You know, there's something new every other month, you know, that you want to watch. There's something new almost every other week at this point. Um, It'd just be nice to see that across the rest of the entertainment industry. And, and I say that to the, the, you know, the TV studios as well. Uh, everyone's familiar with like your, your fall lineup. And then we started getting a little bit more of this like short spring lineup when we decided to drop things that didn't do well in the fall. We've got a few new things to come up and there's a little bit of a summer lineup, but like the summer lineup ends up being, you know, typically like that, like throw it out with the garbage. Let's see if anything happens. Cause people aren't, it's, 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 it's 2019 like people are gonna you know, netflix has demonstrated this if you have a good good show people will go ahead and watch it any time of year and yeah. they will sit down and watch it all of it in a week if you let them um so yeah that's true and i i would agree i don't like i understand some of the marketing behind um you know we're gonna stagger our movies throughout the year we're gonna i or rather you know we're gonna put our big movies around christmas we're gonna put our big movies in the summer um, 
and you know you so you put your big blockbuster tentpole movies in the summer months because kids are out of school parents can take them to the movie it's something that people will do on a hot summer's day they can go sit in the air conditioning then you'd put all your arty movies uh you know october november december so that they're all want to get fresh. the Oscar nominations right yeah. they're all going to be fresh in everybody's brain come oscar time in february but uh if it they would... send out the DVD screeners, and let's mm-hmm. uh, until someone can can show me that the DVD screeners they send out aren't worthwhile, and people are only going to do based on the release. Um, I guess that'd be an interesting analysis to see what time of the year a movie came out versus you know what were possible nominations, what were nominations, and what was picked. That would be a, a really interesting study to to you know have someone do. Uh, but just from the personal level, you know, I get the the passes to to go to, to films all the time. I will probably go to something this evening. Um, I, I feel like sometimes I get jammed up because there's a bunch of movies get released all at once because you know, we're going into summer. Yeah. And then other times of the year, you're like, there's nothing new. You guys <laughs> aren't even using two of your theaters right now because you don't have anything to put on. You're looking for anniversaries of movies that used to be, you know, that people are familiar with so that you can do 10 showings over the weekend because you want to yeah. go ahead and like make money on that space, which is nice to see old films, but not at the price, you know, AMC or star want, you know, I like to go down to the, you know, your, your local small art. Yeah. Uh, you know, place to, to go see those, uh, those reruns, um, kind of a homier atmosphere. But, yep. Yeah. Alas. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you guys for joining me this week uh, and talking about this movie. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're interested in this podcast, if you're listening to this and you and it's your first time, um, you can go to the the website tvstravis.com as the home of the Wait You Haven't You Haven't Seen podcast. And go right there. There's a big subscribe button. You can find us in Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Uh, if you go to the website and get the RSS feed, put it into whatever podcast player you want. We put episodes out every Saturday. Um, it's uh, oftentimes uh, one of these two um, uh, with me, AJ and David. Uh, you guys have done probably the most episodes so far, um, but we do try to I'd keep. I'd say a, Christina's probably up there. Oh yeah, Christina too. I, you know, and I try to keep a, a nice rotating um, group of people coming in and out, um, just so you know nobody gets tired of doing this, and you know you guys don't get tired of talking to me for an hour every week, but. Um, yeah, that's where you can get the show. Um, so, David and AJ, thank you for joining me this week. Um, and, uh, you know, as we like to say a lot, uh, enjoy your movies. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. and plants with thorns as big as my dick.